This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Toronto City Councillor Jay Robinson is back at work after more than a year of grueling cancer treatment in the midst of COVID-19. She shares her experience. And we look at how the pandemic hit the cancer system as a whole from the perspective of an oncologist. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. As COVID-19 cases surge, a study by the Angus Reid Institute finds Americans are having a more difficult time than Canadians with both the financial and health challenges. Americans are twice as likely as Canadians to be dealing with elevated stress levels, and 46% of Americans are extremely worried about their finances compared to a much lower 28% of Canadians. And while people in both countries are growing tired of social distancing, mask wearing, and other practices, more than half of Canadians polled are confident that people here will turn the situation around. In the UK, older adults are responding to that pandemic stress by turning to alcohol in alarming numbers, specifically binge drinking. A new survey suggests one in four of those over 50 may be at risk of alcohol dependence, and about half in that age group may be consuming alcohol at a level that could damage their health, with more than 4 million having in excess of four drinks in one sitting at least once a week. Get to your doctor for a checkup and find out if a free sample of Viagra is right for you. Spike Lee is directing a movie musical about the invention of Viagra. The 63-year-old legendary director has signed on for the project about the origin story of the little blue pill, the first drug to treat erectile dysfunction. Viagra was created in 1998 as a therapy for the treatment of chest pain related to the heart, but accidentally produced the revolutionary ED pill. As one fan joked on Twitter, the movie had better not last longer than four hours. The ICU grandpa who cradled sick and premature babies has died just 17 days after being diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. David Deutschman was nicknamed the Baby Whisperer after volunteering for 14 years at Atlanta's Children's Healthcare. Twice a week, he held and comforted sick and premature babies. He spent his career working in international sales and volunteered after retirement. A nurse who worked with David for eight years, said she never saw a baby crying in his arms. For more than a year, Toronto City Councillor Jay Robinson has been sidelined by a grueling and lengthy treatment for a complicated case of breast cancer. She went through most of it at the height of the pandemic. I talked with Jay about her experience after she attended her first council meeting back this week. 
Jay Robinson, so nice to talk to you. You as well. How are you? Well, I'm I'm on the upswing, Libby, early stages of the upswing, I would say. I just recently finished uh, my last chemo treatment after 13 months of nonstop treatment. So, it's a long it's a long road, as you well know, and um I'm I'm on it. So, I'm moving forward. When was uh, the last time you were in a, can- a council meeting? So I was able to join the TTC, as you know, I'm the TTC chair, and I was able to join the TTC meeting last week, but I didn't chair it, I just participated. And this was my very first council meeting this week. Um, I was just elated to be back in my council chair, although virtually because of COVID. But I was, I really have to say, Libby, I visualized throughout the whole process being back in that seat, back in the council chamber in my seat participating. And today that dream came true. Tell us uh, about what were you diagnosed with and what was the course of your treatment like? I was diagnosed last September. I was really shell-shocked because I thought I was going in to meet with the doctor and he he would say, don't worry, it was just a, a benign cyst, you're fine. There's no real history of breast cancer in my family and quite frankly, not that much cancer, period. And I've left left a, lived a pretty healthy life and had a lot of stamina. So I was shell-shocked last September when uh, just completely blindsided when I found out that I had breast cancer. What they identified at, in, in September was that I was estrogen positive and about stage two. But by December, um, when I'd seen a number of other experts, I actually learned the cysts and tumors were bigger than they thought and it, I was actually stage three because it actually had spread to my lymph nodes. So that was a setback. And cancer, with cancer, there's a lot of setbacks. But the real setback came after surgery in February. And that setback was that they found out I had a very rare situation and that I also had triple negative cancer, which I know that's complex to listeners, but there is breast cancer is more complex than people think. And there's a number of types of breast cancer. And I actually... I don't know why, but I had two, and um, that was a real setback because triple negative tends to be a very aggressive type of breast cancer. And much harder to treat. Correct. That was a real setback. So I had a very rough spring after learning that information, but the issue was that after four months of chemo, followed by surgery, followed by close to two months of radiation due to covid then I had to go back on to chemo to, de- to tackle the triple negative cancer, to treat that. My focus was to get back, to, you know, by May 2020, but I had a real setback with this new update. Uh, it was really determined to be an underdiagnosis originally, and so this uh, it caused me then to have to take six more months of chemo. And your setback was it the physical side effects of that or or as well the emotional ones? You know, Libby, that's a great question. It was a little bit of both because my body had been through so much. And as you know, chemotherapy is, is not uh, fun. And the chemotherapy for estrogen positive is quite aggressive. Um, they call one of the, one of the um, I know you know this, but, it, you know, it's called Red Devil, which really aptly describes the chemical. I had the red devil. You did? Yes, I did, but only only three times. Only three times. Okay, well, you were lucky. Yeah, but, uh, I sure am. There's no question about that. But, um, yeah, I guess it was, um, it, it, you know, just all those chemicals in your body physically 
to then have to go back on. And then after surgery and radiation is easier, but still not fun. And my radiation took place during the, the onset of COVID. Oh, no. So that was, I have to say, people often say, Jay, you know, you have no fears. I was fearful. I was terrified going into the radiation center every day um, during the worst of COVID in the spring, the worst uh, of COVID in the spring, where we really didn't fully understand the virus. So that was, that was terrifying. And then, but then I had to go back on chemo. So to answer your question, it was a bit of both. It was the physical because I felt my body was quite beaten up and the side effects had really taken a toll. And then it was also the emotional because up till then I, I was pretty strong. And with radiation, it's cumulative and it makes you tired. It does. And I had it over two months. Um, it was really six weeks of radiation, but it was spread over two months because of COVID, because the hospital was reeling on how to address COVID. I was really, really fortunate, Libby, because my surgery was just about a month before COVID hit. Like when I mean hit, like really hit. And I was lucky to get that over with. And then my radiation had just started when a lot of the lockdowns started happening. And once you, they start you on radiation, it's very hard for them to pull you off. So I, I just hit the sweet spot. Like, I feel really fortunate was my uh, positioning because many people, many, as you know, many cancer patients have been had huge delays in their treatment programs. Wow, it all sounds, frankly, so much more difficult than when I went through it. And it's difficult enough at, at the best of times. My heart goes out to people that had their surgeries delayed or their radiation delayed or their chemotherapy delayed because I'm on Facebook groups with other breast cancer thrivers and they have all told me their stories and a lot of people were affected and I think that's very worrisome for people because you feel like things are growing, not doing the opposite. They did well in that they they did their best to prioritize patients that were a bit more severe that were more in maybe a life-threatening situation, which that basically is with anybody who has cancer. But I think they, they did a good job prioritizing and, and moving things forward as best they could. Going forward, is there anything you want to say either about the cancer treatment or what your priorities are going forward? Well, I think I really had my eyes open, Libby. I, I knew literally nothing about cancer before September 2019. I barely knew anybody who had cancer. And that's why I picked up In Cancer Land, which is a great book. Oh, thank I can't you. say enough about it. Thank you so um, much. It really helped me. I find generally a lot of people don't even sometimes disclose they have cancer, which I was toying with doing. And Meritori talked me out of it. I thought maybe I could. I'm a very private person, or I was. I'm not really anymore. But um, Meritori talked me out of trying to hide or, you know, keep this issue private. I think it's important to have these dialogues about cancer and the impacts it has. And and the fact that 27,000 women in 2020, over 27,000 women will, will get breast cancer. Jay Robinson, thank you for telling us your story. Thank you, Libby. That was City Councillor and TTC Chair Jay Robinson on her experience of breast cancer during COVID-19. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, we get an oncologist's perspective on how COVID is impacting the diagnosis and treatment of cancer. 
You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. There's no question the pandemic has disrupted the spectrum of cancer care, delaying diagnosis and treatment for many patients and halting some clinical trials. And although healthcare systems have been reorganizing to meet the challenge, it's also made things much harder for doctors. I talked with Dr. Charlene Gill, a BC medical oncologist and president-elect of the Canadian Association of Medical Oncologists. Early on uh, in, in the start of the pandemic in March, um, we started collecting data. My practice is in BC. And so provincially, what we recognized was the number of cases that were coming to our pathology lab for confirmation of cancer diagnosis had dropped by 50% in the first three months. And so that means the procedures that lead to those diagnostic biopsies were not being done. Uh, we knew that cancer screening programs, mammography, colorectal cancer screening programs, pap smears had all been suspended. And so um, there has really been a push then to try to, uh, once the sp- screening programs were reinitiated when the first wave had settled out, to try to encourage people to come back and resume uh, you know, screening uh, and try to allay concerns they had about uh, balancing COVID risk and and the fact that there you know the, these um, cancers uh, if delayed could result in you know really far inferior outcomes for patients. How much was delayed because the the uh, tests were shut down, and how much was delayed because patients were reluctant to deal with it? You know, if they found something or felt something, they were afraid to go to the hospital. It's a really good question, Libby. I think from a screening perspective, because screening is done in patients without symptoms, right? The whole intent of that is is in, in folks who are asymptomatic. Delays in screening are, were definitely a consequence of programs being suspended. Uh, but what we did see is when the programs were reinitiated in the summer, there was slow uptake for people to feel comfortable coming back in. Um, in ter- the bigger concern was delayed presentations with symptoms. So, you know, I treat gastroesophageal cancers, for example, and I had many patients who were who came to me with a diagnosis in the fall reporting symptoms in the spring that they kept deferring, hoping that, oh, I'll go to the doctor when the pandemic is over. Uh, and so that's where I think education and awareness has a key role in trying to in, inform people of the need to, the, the healthcare system is still there and the need to address symptoms early. You know, Hospitals and cancer centers in particular have done a very good job of trying to implement uh, safeguards that minimize the risk of COVID. So we screen all patients prior to entry into the hospitals and clinics. Um, We limit the traffic within hospitals. We have to limit visitors for that purpose. Um, And at the end of the day, I think, you know, one of the things we have to recognize is that delays in cancer, uh, unfortunately, you know, we can't recover that lost time. And so timely access to treatment is very important. I've talked to doctors here who have reassured me that that only non-emergency treatments were delayed. However, for instance, there's an article in BMJ, which showed that delaying a treatment, any kind of treatment, uh, surgery, radiation, or chemo, 
by four weeks results in a 10% increase in the risk of, of dying. Um, that seems pretty sobering. It is sobering to quantify it in that, you know, relative risk that that, uh, that, that delay in treatment does result in uh, an inferior outcome. I would, I would again, you know, um, be cautious against applying a sort of a wide brush uh, in terms of all cases in, in that uh, there are cancers that are more indolent, that typically treatment can be safely deferred. Um, and it really requires a one-on-one -on -one discussion uh, with the patient and the cancer team. What about the fact that patients can't bring a loved one to their appointments? I mean, first of all, it increases anxiety, but also, you know, often they bring someone with them because it's very hard to absorb all the information when, uh, like, your head is just going cancer, cancer, cancer. What we have done uh, in our practice, and I think many other cancer systems have done the same, is I encourage patients to try to uh, uh, bring a, a device so that their loved ones can participate virtually in that uh, uh, discussion. Um, we really have uh, tried to manage the information that's provided by doing it across multiple visits where we may have an initial in-person assessment and then a subsequent virtual follow-up that can involve their family members. Um, and uh, at the end of the day, I think uh, it's not ideal, but we are trying to find uh, technology-based solutions to try to get us through this. How effective do you find them? It's difficult. Yeah, I, You know, so much about uh, medicine is about our engagement with our patients, our relationships with our patients, being able to hold a patient's hand or give a patient a hug. And it brings tears to my eyes to now think about situations where I haven't been able to do that or I've had to say goodbye to patients over the phone. Oh, that, that seems terrible. Yeah. Horrible, yeah. What do you say to patients who've, who've had their, you know, spectrum of care disrupted? How do they get things back on track or how do they advocate for themselves? Getting information, seeking uh, a patient advocacy groups. So there are a number of uh, patient cancer patient associations that have really great platforms and information available to patients. I encourage my patients to reach out to them. Uh, again, it's virtual. It's a virtual world, but uh, we may be distanced physically, but I, I think we want to stay connected as much as possible. Dr. Charlene Gill, thank you so much. Thank you, Lydia. That was Dr. Charlene Gill, a medical oncologist in British Columbia and president-elect of the Canadian Association of Medical Oncologists. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.